Welcome again to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here today. So last week we asked the question, what comes next for the newly liberated Israelites in the book of Exodus? God has publicly and definitively trounced the powerful nation of Egypt. He's defeated its so-called gods, and he's shamed its hard-hearted Pharaoh. God has done this through multiple supernatural and catastrophic plagues. Now, the first nine plagues were bad. The Nile River turned to blood. Infestations of frogs, gnats, flies, and locusts. Hailstorms, dead livestock, sick people, ruined crops, and three days of darkness. Those were all bad. But the tenth and final plague, the death of the firstborn, that is what finally convinced Pharaoh to let the Israelites go from their slavery. God's power and glory have been clearly displayed in his judgment on the Egyptians. And his grace, mercy, and love have been clearly displayed to the Israelites, those spared by the blood of a sacrificial lamb painted on their doorposts. But again, we still have to ask the question, what comes next for Israel? Where will they go? What route will they take as they leave Egypt and head to the promised land? What will over 600,000 refugees eat and drink? What will they do if they're attacked by enemies? And have they really seen the last of Pharaoh? So as we pick up this morning in the story, we start to see some of these questions begin to be answered. And along the way, we learn a few things about God that we Christians believe are still true today. So open your Bibles to Exodus 13, verse 17. Feel free to use our Bibles if you didn't bring one and take one home if you don't have one. But before we go any further, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together to worship you. Thank you for, as Joshua said earlier in the service, just the consistency of Sunday morning. Uh, Again, we say it every once in a while, that there is so much in this world that is unstable and unsteady and uncertain and there are very few guarantees in this life even though we wake up a lot of days and things seem pretty normal things seem unchanged we know that there is so much in this life that we cannot control we know there is so much that is so unpredictable and so father in the midst of that thank you that you are our rock thank you that you are strong you are stable you are steady and that every single sunday morning we can gather here and worship you. And Father, I pray you'd allow us to continue doing that moving forward. Thank you for this congregation. I pray that you'd be with those who are here this morning, new faces, old faces, guests. Father, I pray that this morning would be upbuilding for all of us and ultimately glorifying to you. And Father, I pray that you'd be with those who aren't here, uh, whether people are traveling, whether people are under the weather. I pray that you would keep them safe and and give them healing. And Father, I pray that our worship today, again, would just bring you praise. Uh, That our worship today would be an offering to you for your glory and for your fame. Because, Father, you are worthy of our glory. You are worthy of our worship. Again, Lord, we love you. We thank you. 
for all you do for us, all you've given to us. We thank you for who you are, and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in his name. Amen. Well, starting in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So as we start reading, a few noteworthy things are happening. First, we get an answer to that question about how the Israelites will get to the promised land. We see that God intentionally takes them on the scenic route. He takes them towards the Red Sea. More than anything, this is to avoid war with the Philistines. Now, while the text does say that the Israelites are equipped for battle, that doesn't mean that they're ready for battle. God knows that the Israelites are vulnerable. They're weak. They're doubtful. And he knows that immediately encountering war would tempt them to return to slavery. We see just how kind, just how gracious, just how understanding God is when he leads the Israelites by this different way. Second, we see that the Israelites are leaving no traces of their time in Egypt. They are truly, fully, 100% gone, and they have no intention of returning. Moses makes that point to honor Joseph's dying request from way back in the book of Genesis. Joseph had insisted that one day his body be taken to the promised land. And Joseph's words prove to be prophetic. God fulfills them. And in addition, this just further drives home the point that the Israelites don't, and really the Israelites never did, truly belong in Egypt. They belong in the promised land. And then finally, we see that God is tangibly present with the Israelites as they leave Egypt. His presence is symbolized by a pillar of cloud and fire. The cloud is easily seen during the day, and the fire more easily seen at night and gives them light. That also tells us something about the sense of urgency with which the Israelites travel. They are hastily leaving Egypt, moving both day and night. So at this point, so far, so good for the Israelites, right? They know where to go. And they're taking a route that won't require any military conflict. It's clear that they are not going back to Egypt. This is the real thing, not a false alarm. And God is visibly present with them around the clock. That way they can move quickly. 
So at this point, you have to ask, well, what could possibly go wrong? The Israelites are home free. Everything is going swimmingly. Well, you pick up in chapter 14, starting in verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So Pharaoh made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. Lots of attention paid to the chariots. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them, encamped by the sea, by Pi-Haharoth, in front of Baal-Zaphon. So what could possibly go wrong? Well, Pharaoh could go wrong. He comes back into the picture with a vengeance. He immediately regretted his decision to let them go. It's starting to set in that Egypt is losing a huge amount of forced labor, enough to cause a massive disruption to the way of life that the Egyptians have known for hundreds of years. And Pharaoh figures that the Israelites might be lost in the wilderness. Maybe they're geographically trapped with no real way out. So he assembles his army and pursues them. But here's the thing. If you read verses 1 through 4 of Exodus 14, you know that even this part of the story is God's doing. God has once again hardened Pharaoh's heart. He has lured him out of Egypt to try and recapture the Israelites. Those verses tell us that God does this to get even more glory over Pharaoh than he already has. So as readers of the passage, we know, and Moses knows, that the Israelites are going to be just fine. We know that God hasn't lost control. We know that God is orchestrating all of this. We know that Pharaoh's efforts to recapture them are doomed from the get-go. But what about the Israelites themselves? They don't know that. So how do you think they'll respond when they look up and see Pharaoh's army on one side and the sea on the other? Well, they're going to respond exactly the way you'd expect them to respond. And if we're being honest, they respond in the same way that you and I would probably respond if we were in their shoes. Picking up in chapter 14, verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. 
So again, the Israelites respond how you'd expect them to. But if you've read the story, you see that they're responding the same way in chapter 14 that they did in chapter 5. Back in chapter 5, when it seemed like God intervening in their lives only made things worse, the Israelites did the exact same thing. After Moses' first conversation with Pharaoh, Pharaoh only increased the Israelites' suffering by forcing them to make bricks without straw. And when that happened, the Israelites turned on Moses. They cursed him. And here they do the exact same thing as they camp out by the sea. They fear greatly. They cry out to the Lord, more out of anguish and frustration than a request for help. They sarcastically criticize Moses. They complain that they'd rather just go back to Egypt and be slaves again. Even after seeing all the plagues, all of God's power, so obvious, the Israelites are the same people they were back in chapter 5. They're temperamental. They're unstable. They're unfaithful. They're looking at Moses and saying, So, Moses, genius, what's your next big plan? How are you going to get us out of this one? But you know, the last time this happened, back in chapter 5, the bricks without straw, when the Israelites turned on Moses, Moses didn't respond much better than they did. He showed his own fear, his own doubt, his own lack of faith. During that episode, Moses wasn't much better than the Israelites. He complained to God, too. In chapter 5, Moses says to God, Why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? You have not delivered your people at all. So we've seen how the Israelites respond to their predicament. But how does Moses respond? Picking up in verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Israelites may be the same in chapter 14 as they were in chapter 5, but Moses seems different. The once hesitant, Waffling, excuse-making, wishy-washy, and even downright disobedient from Moses from that conversation at the burning bush in chapters 3 and 4. The Moses who turned on God as soon as things got bad and the Israelites turned on him in chapter 5. This Moses has changed. He's confident in God's words. He's firm in his obedience. He's observed God's track record over time, and he has learned to entrust himself and the Israelites to God's care, even when their situation looks grim. I mean, how else could Moses possibly say what he says in verse 14 with a straight face? The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Who in the world says that? When you have an army on one side 
and water on the other. Well, again, Moses knows, and we as readers know, what the trembling Israelites don't. We know that even this seemingly hopeless predicament, an army on one side and the sea on the other, it's all been orchestrated by God for his glory. Moses has learned to trust in God's power. He's learned to trust in God's sovereignty. You know, the Israelites probably thought Moses was crazy when he told them to stay still, shut up, and watch as God defeated Pharaoh's army. They were probably considering any option but staying still. They could fight. They could flee. They could surrender. They could even try to swim. But they don't want to stay still. They don't want to just sit there and die. But as it turns out, Moses was right. It turns out that his faith and his confidence in God are vindicated. Starting in verse 19. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord and the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So God comes through. He fights for, and he ultimately saves his people. The pillar of cloud and fire. God's visible presence moves between Pharaoh's army and the Israelites. Through Moses' hand and a conveniently timed strong east wind, God divides the sea in two with a dry path in the middle. And when those confused Egyptians try to pursue the Israelites, those imposing horses, those intimidating chariots, end up doing more harm than good. 
And when the Egyptians finally see that they cannot match up to God, when it becomes undeniable that the Lord himself is fighting against them, it's too late. The Israelites make it across safely, and the pursuing Egyptians drown. It's summed up in verses 30 and 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. It's a fascinating, exciting, dramatic story, isn't it? But again, what do we as Christians learn about our God from these verses? Because after all, we've mentioned several times over the past few weeks that the God we worship today is the God of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So what do we Christians learn about our God from today's text? This dramatic story with Pharaoh's army and the sea. Well, first, I think we Christians learn something about God's presence with his people. Remember the pillar of cloud and fire. That visible presence of God that moved between Israel and Pharaoh when his army was bearing down on them. We see that God didn't save his people and then leave them. He didn't just secure their freedom from Egypt, wipe his hands together, and wish them luck. He made his ongoing presence known to them. He stayed with them. He didn't save them and then just leave them to sink or swim. He guided them and he guarded them. And you know, we Christians know a thing or two about God's presence as well. Here in a few weeks, when Christmas rolls around, we'll talk about the Incarnation. When God came near in the person of Jesus Christ to save his people from their sins. On top of that, we also believe that God did not save us and then leave us to fend for ourselves. God is continually present with us at this very moment. In John 14, Jesus told his disciples that even after he is gone, after his death, after his resurrection, after his ascension, He tells the disciples that he would not leave them as orphans. He would not leave them alone. He would send the Holy Spirit to them. And Christians today, like you and me, we have the same Holy Spirit living within us at this very moment. Now, it's true that God's presence with us through his Holy Spirit may not be as visibly obvious It may not be as visually impressive as a pillar of cloud and fire. But that doesn't make it any less real. And finally, we believe that our ultimate reward as followers of Jesus is to be in God's presence for eternity. Again, not just a symbol, not just a sign, but we look forward to the full experience of God's presence. We eagerly await the day when Christ returns and brings God's kingdom with him on earth as it is in heaven. Revelation 21 paints this picture of God dwelling with us. 
that his glory will be our light. Just like God's fiery presence in Exodus gave the Israelites light. And you know, knowing all this about God's presence ought to be a great source of comfort and confidence and assurance for Christians. It's incredibly comforting to know that God does not save us and then abandon us. In a very real sense, he is present with us now. And in another very real sense, we look forward to being present with him in eternity. We believe that God saves us. But we also believe that God guides us. That God guards us. And that God will ultimately usher us into his presence once and for all. And then second, our passage today tells us something about God's power. We've seen it all over the Exodus. Like we saw in the plagues two weeks ago and the Passover last week, God's raw might is so obvious in Exodus. He has power over nature, power over rulers and authorities, power over horses and chariots. We see God's power all over Scripture. Psalm 65, verse 7, tells us that God stills the roaring of the seas. We saw that here. We see it elsewhere. Psalm 146, verse 3, teaches us not to put our trust in princes, or for that matter, pharaohs. Psalm 20, verse 7, teaches us not to trust in horses and chariots. We saw what happened to the Egyptians' chariots. God is more powerful than the seas. He's more powerful than princes and kings and pharaohs and presidents and rulers and authorities. And he is more powerful than horses, more powerful than chariots, more powerful than bombs, more powerful than tanks, more powerful than guns and knives. God is more powerful than all of these things. No force of nature No king, no weapon of war can stand up to the Lord. He alone has the power to save. And like we said with God's presence, we Christians know a thing or two about God's power as well. We believe that Jesus the Son possesses the same power as God the Father. He has the same might that we read about in Exodus. He too can still the roaring seas. In fact, he can even walk on them. He too has power over rulers and authorities. Their earthly, temporary kingdoms pale in comparison to his heavenly, eternal kingdom. And even the horrible weapon deployed against Jesus, the cross, which is far more frightening than Pharaoh's chariots, the cross was the means of Christ's victory and our salvation. We believe that God is more powerful than all of these things. And we believe that Jesus Christ is the fullness of God's presence, the fullness of God's power in human flesh, because he is God. So then the question becomes, well, how should we respond to all of this? Well, I think we respond the same way Moses and the Israelites did after God cast that army into the sea. We respond with worship. Exodus 15, 1 through 21 is all about worship. 
Moses and the Israelites sing of God's presence. They sing of God's power. They sing of the salvation that he has accomplished for them. We see it in Exodus 15, starting in verse 1. We'll just read part of it. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide my spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. But you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. And then a fitting way to end it. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. When we think of Jesus, the fullness of God's power and presence and the salvation that he has accomplished for us, we too have reason to worship. We too have reason to sing. But sadly, even after we see the salvation God has accomplished for us through Christ, we often respond to our hardships more like the Israelites before they crossed the sea than after. Instead of fear, faith, and worship, we sometimes feel hopeless as we face the concerns, sufferings, and trials that God allows or maybe even puts in our path. We may cry out in our anguish against God. We may doubt whether he ever really intended good for us at all and wonder if we'd be better off if he had never gotten involved in our lives to begin with. But in those moments, may we be reminded of God's track record. May we remember God's presence and God's power, seen so well in the Exodus, but seen even more clearly on the cross. And may we remember the salvation that he has already accomplished for us. And may we be led to worship. May we be led to sing. Read that verse again. Exodus 14, verse 14. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. What a verse that is. In the moment, it's a strong rebuke and an assurance for the Israelites. While they were throwing their temper tantrum, God told them to stay still, shut up, and trust God to do the work of saving them. How often do we need the same reminder? 
We need that verse in those moments when we fear, when we doubt, when we're tempted to lose hope entirely. But we also need that verse when we're tempted to try and fight our own battles and save ourselves by our own weak hands rather than trusting in God's mighty hand. But we remember when we feel like we're already in the promised land or when we feel like death has us surrounded on all sides, we remember that the Lord has already fought the most important battle for us. God has already fought for and won our salvation over Satan, sin, and death through his son, Jesus Christ, the human embodiment of his presence and his power. And knowing this salvation that the Lord has worked for us, may we fear not. May we stand firm. And may we sing for joy. May we worship God, not just because he threw some bad guys in the sea a long time ago, but because through Jesus, in the words of Micah 7.19, God has cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for these reminders from your word that, as we've said, we so often need. Like we said earlier, in this world that is unstable and unpredictable and unsteady, you are our rock. And Father, we trust you, we love you, we worship you. We thank you for your works in the past that display your power, that display your presence, that display your grace for sinners, that display your righteousness, that display your mercy. And Father, we thank you not just for the way these things were displayed in the Exodus for the Israelites, but we thank you for the gospel, the true, perfect, most overwhelming fulfillment of your power and your presence is seen in Christ. And Father, it's by his broken body and his shed blood that we are saved. It's because of him that our sins have been cast into the sea, that we have been forgiven, that we have been reconciled to you. So, Father, remind us of that no matter what it is that we may face next. The questions, the uncertainties, the fears, the doubts that may be coming our way, which we don't even know what they are at this point, I pray that you would empower us to worship you through them, that you would empower us to remain faithful through them, that you would empower us to continue singing to you no matter what our circumstances may be. May we trust in your power. May we lean on your presence. May we believe your track record, that you have already fought the most important battle for us, and so we can trust you now, no matter what else it is that we might be facing. We love you. We worship you. We honor you. We thank you for Christ, and we ask this all in his name. Amen.